Hello, and welcome to Old Testament in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Dynek, and this week we're working our way through Genesis 11 and a little bit of 12. We're glimpsing bits of God's sovereignty today, that what he says comes to pass, even if it looks a little different than what we picture, and, along with our theme last week, happens at a time we don't imagine or sometimes hope for. But ultimately, our future can and should be full of hope and excitement, so let's get to it. Well, so far, I'm liking the new schedule. Still kind of a weird week a little bit with the winter storm that we had moved through the area. So I was working at home uh, Monday and Tuesday morning and was able to get out Wednesday morning back to Panera to have coffee and work on some stuff. But as I said, the recording schedule is a little bit different. So Monday nights is I have a Bible study group on Zoom that I meet with. And then I started recording the podcast on Wednesday night and recording the chapter on Friday night. So then I get Tuesday, Thursday nights off, just can relax, hang out with my wife and read or watch movies or TV shows or whatever it is we end up doing. But just kind of a little more relaxing, a little less pressure to be recording and trying to do something every single night. And so far with one week in, it's been good. I was able to get the entire chapter edited. It is up on the website, danieldatic.com. And then under the Triumverse page, there's a subpage called audiobooks. You'll need to uh, subscribe to the newsletter to get the password to enter. But once you do that, all episodes are free. And along with that, another kind of interesting development with recording the audio version. Um, I had mentioned earlier, and I had seen this practice before, people said when you're revising to read your book out loud, because things that kind of don't work well tend to stick out a lot more when you're reading it out loud than when you're just reading it on the page. And I definitely found that to be true already so far, but then lately, and don't get too worried about this, but it's kind of getting heavier on my mind to rewrite by ways unseen. Now, because I'm already this deep into the series, I'm not going to start on this right away. My thought is that if I do it, I'm going to wait till I finish the series um, and then maybe circle back and redo it. Because this will be, aside from trying to clean up a lot of just really loose and kind of sloppy writing, this will include some major plot level revisions. And so it won't necessarily be completely from scratch, but it might end up being there. So, so rather than taking a pause again and going all the way back to the beginning... If I do it, if I do it, it'll be at after finishing out writing the entire series. So don't worry too much about that. With that, let's get into today's episode. This week, I'm thankful for a study Bible. The one I mentioned I would be using when this Old Testament series first kicked off. And then honestly, I really haven't been using it that much. But today we come to another possibly difficult passage, mostly because it defies some basic understanding of our world today, and because it seems kind of unnecessary, if we're honest. Let's take a look at it. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. 
From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, there should be a lot of questions already, so let's work through each one. First, my study Bible asks, what was the first language? Of course, we don't know. Noahan, apparently. Linguists have traced English and many others back to Proto-Indo-European, which is not a known language. There is no writing or remnants of such a language. It is actually derived from first understanding how language develops and then kind of reverse engineering a lot of similar ancient languages and noticing potential common root words. But even that only goes back so far and does not account for every language spoken today. But an interesting note within the study Bible's answer to this question was the observation that quote-unquote one language might just mean that there was a similar tongue. Fantasy writers like to call this the common tongue usually to help explain why people from so many different nationalities can meet in the same tavern and go on adventures together. So there's one common speech among them, but they also have their own distinct languages that they would speak back home, as it were. The study Bible references Genesis 10 verses 5, 20, and 31 that say, From these the maritime peoples spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. And these are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Now, obviously, it would be ridiculous to think that each son of Noah had their own language that they passed down to their respective offspring. So we already need to look at these verses a little more critically. What 5, 20, and 31 rather say is that by the time the branches have extended this far, some generations, these clans or nations and languages developed. So let's look at the generations, because English too changed quite a bit on its journey and didn't really start stabilizing until after the 15th century. For the Japhethites, our genealogy in chapter 10, it's two generations, Japheth to Javan to the Rodanim, who became the maritime peoples, Ham, two generations again, wow, Ham to Canaan to Canaan's offspring. It's in Shem we have our clue in verses 22 through 25. Shem gave birth to, among others, Arphaxad, who gave birth to Eber, who gave birth to Peleg. And it says in verse 25, one was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. So we can probably safely assume that everyone was still speaking whatever language it was that Noah spoke, one language, and it hadn't really divided into dialects or different languages. Those take quite a bit more time to develop than that. Our next question then might be, why did God feel the need to scatter them? After all, a ton of people speak English, for instance, or Chinese, but English is spoken far more worldwide and is even the language of international airports, so all commercial pilots and air traffic controllers worldwide are required to speak it, and surely we've built bigger cities and towers than they could have with bricks and tar some thousands of years ago. So let's talk about this for a little bit in a sidebar. There is a temptation, I think, sometimes to despiritualize the Bible. I've heard reports that seminaries are some of the most spiritually dead places in the world, and many would-be pastors and ministers end up walking away from their faith entirely, not just ministry, but stop believing in God because of what they learn there. And I'm guessing this is why, because highly intellectual people, the kind who would spend lots of time studying, are biased toward their minds and logic. And they look at things like this like God confusing languages and spreading people over the world, and say, well, this was just a nice story to explain why there are different languages and why there are so many nations in so many different places. It's not important if it's actually true or not. But then we start doing that to verse after verse, after passage after passage. It's not important if it's true in the sense of being historically accurate, as long as it's true in the sense it gave the Israelites an identity and heritage. 
There are bogs and mires and rabbit trails abundant that the erudite can get lost in as they try to figure out the historical, sociological, paleological truth that they have no time for the spiritual truth. Even the study Bible I'm using gives very basic, plain, logically sound reasons for why these verses say what they do. As we now say, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Though I misspoke last week and only said the best commentary is the Bible. A not untrue statement, but not what I meant to say. So I'll say it again to help correct. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So let's stop worrying about what it says in these verses and look instead at what it says in these verses. Yes, I meant to say that. Bear with me. The whole world had one language and one common speech. Not the whole world had many languages, but one common speech. The whole world, at this point, being the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth to about the second or third generation. So we're still not necessarily talking about thousands or millions. They said, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so we may make a name for ourselves. Whoa, wait. What name for themselves do they need? By the fourth generation since Noah, why isn't the name of God for themselves good enough? So what we're seeing here, far beyond simply building a city and a tower, is the rapid falling away of the people God saved from the flood. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, according to Genesis 9, verse 28. If we look ahead in chapter 11 to the descendants of Shem, we see that two years after the flood, Shem gave birth to Arphaxad. 35 years later, Shelah is born. 30 years later, Eber is born. 34 years later, Peleg is born. All told, 101 years after the flood. Noah is still 249 years away from dying, and everyone is already falling away from worshiping God. Remind me again why we think one great spiritual leader should be able to keep everyone on the straight and narrow. This was the guy God found righteous enough to save, who had obeyed God to the detail and felt compelled to worship God, not complain to God, after spending a year and ten days cooped up in an ark, almost two months of which was spent sitting in an open ark and looking at dry land, but not being told to come out yet. And the focus is all on themselves. Let us build a city, make a name for ourselves. And why? and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And look at God's response. See, I see sarcasm and humor in the nature of God all through the Old Testament. But see what it says in verse 5. But the Lord came down to see this city and the tower the people were building. It's interesting to me that he came down to see. He did not look down, which he was certainly capable of doing. No, he actually came down, it says. And we can see in Genesis chapter 18 that God is prone to coming down to earth in some sort of physical form. Verses 1 through 5. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you could be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. This honestly gives me a little bit of a chill as I read it, because notice what happens here. The Lord appeared. How did he appear? Abram looked up and saw three men standing nearby. They did not approach from a distance. Abram looked up, and there they were. Yet verse 1 says it was the singular Lord who appeared, but as three men, perhaps. We'll look ahead at a different verse here in a minute that sheds a slightly different light on what's happening here, but still notice that Abram goes up to the three men and says, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, addressing a singular. He addresses my Lord, and yet, very well, they answered. And several more times throughout this passage, it switches from they to the Lord. Now here's a quick, interesting part, and we'll return to Shinar and the city and tower. Verse 16, and then 22. 
When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So here the image maybe gets a little confused. Did the men refer to all three and thus the Lord was technically a fourth? Probably not. And in chapter 19, verse 1, it says the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. And throughout that chapter, it clearly refers to them as plural. So more likely when the Lord appeared, he was and is obviously the most important figure of the three. Abram somehow recognized this and addressed him directly. They all responded because soon they would separate, the two angels continuing to Sodom while the Lord remained behind to talk to Abram. But for now, they all agreed to stay with Abram and refresh themselves. But what's also interesting, now that we return to Shinar, is we have this second example of God coming down in some sort of manifestation to take a look at the evils of a city in person. So while the men are trying to build a tower to reach the heavens, God simply comes down. And he is a God who constantly comes down to us. So while they're busy trying to make a name for themselves by reaching up to God, he comes down and says, hey guys, what you doing? His response is also interesting and worth another question. He says in verse 6, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Once again, humankind today has done far more than build a city with a high tower, and yet God seems to leave us alone. We might say it's because we're under the new covenant, but even in the Old Testament, there were great cities with high towers that God left alone for the most part. So are we still sure this isn't just a nice story to explain why there are so many languages? My Quest Study Bible offers another helpful hint. The phrase, nothing they plan to do will be impossible, might be understood in a similar way to our phrase, anything can happen. It is not some reversal of Jesus' future statement, with man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. It does not even necessarily mean they could literally do anything they set their mind to. But it is important, I think, that he has not yet revealed himself to Abram and has not yet set up his covenant people. God, throughout the rest of the Bible, always has some witness to himself and his nature for people to see and consider. As we've noted, Noah should still be alive at this time and yet there's no mention of him. We don't know what happened to him after the flood or if he began turning away from God. Perhaps he thought to leave his legacy in the hands of his offspring and was an ineffectual witness by this point. We'd like to think not, though we certainly have evidence of it today, even among those who have the Holy Spirit inside them, something that the overwhelming majority of Old Testament figures did not. The point then is this, and it harks back to our theme from last week. Bad timing on humankind's part. God's plan was not yet ready for what the people were doing in Shinar, so he set them back a bit, scattered them, confused their language, so that by the time they regrouped and began flourishing again, he had his witnesses and covenant in place, so the people were without excuse. I believe God still does this today, especially on the individual level. He might give us some vision or plan for our future, and we, in our excitement, charge ahead the minute we receive it. And he's got to come down and confuse us a little, scatter us a bit, so we have the opportunity to come back to him to see what's going on, and to seek his wisdom and guidance again, and the opportunity for him to say, wait, not yet, but soon. And this, again, is where I love the humor of God, and how he so blatantly skewers our pride, just so there is no mistaking who's in charge. Because the men who were building this great city were doing all of it in order not to be scattered. And what does God do? He scatters them. Even the language in the writing is similar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower reaching to the heavens, so we may not be scattered. The Lord said, Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so the Lord scattered them. What a legend. What a warning and admonishment to us to remember who's in charge, who rules the heavens and the earth, and to whom we should defer in all our plans. James says this in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So, we who are living to make a name for God and not for ourselves, let's listen to what the scriptures say. This does not mean we cannot have grand plans or goals. I personally have some for this year, but we should always keep ourselves open to God's divine readjustments. And if the Holy Spirit is preventing us to pay attention and pray for where God would actually have us go and what he would actually have us do there. Now that we've established God's supremacy, time for a little more family history and tracing the line of Shem down to Abram, through whom the rest of the story of God's ultimate salvation comes. Just to keep us in mind of the timing of all of this. When Abram is born, Noah is still 58 years away from dying. We don't know if they knew each other or had ever met or had talked about God together. We do know from a scripture further in that we'll get to later that Abram was living in a place that did not at large follow God, but we'll leave that for now. Also note through this genealogy, the gradually declining length of years people lived. Already, they're having their first sons far earlier than they had previously. In Genesis 5, the earliest anyone was having their firstborn sons was 65. Most were over 100. Now, suddenly, most are having theirs in their 30s, and they're dying earlier and earlier until they're around 200 or less. To close out chapter 11, let's look at this. Verse 31 says, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, a handy-dandy little map in my study Bible shows that Haran is decently far north of Canaan, by a couple several hundred miles, while Canaan is almost directly west of Ur. Now, it could be they were following water, or it could be that we need to understand the sovereignty of God as shown in Genesis 15. He, God, also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But God also says, as we start in chapter 12, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And remember the verse we said we would reference later? Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. The Bible isn't clear why Terah left Ur with Abram. It may have been the result of his son, Haran, dying. Interesting that he then settled in a land with the same name as his son. But what we can probably see is still the hand of God guiding events so that Abram would have to leave his father, who likely still worshipped other gods, leave that sphere of influence in order to position him to receive God's covenant and promise. So when Terah left with Abram, God guided them far to the north first, until Terah came to Haran and decided to settle there. Then God was able to bring Abram and Sarai and Lot away from there, closer to the land God would promise. Chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible already know how long that promise took to fulfill. Abram was long, long gone before this promised land was fulfilled in the strictest sense in Deuteronomy and Joshua, and even longer before it was completely fulfilled in Christ. At the end of a long, long list of patriarchs, prophets, and believers who died, the writer of Hebrews reminds us, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. 
They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. I know I am guilty of being impatient with my goals and dreams. My wife and I talked last year about the vision of both of us being freelancers. Her with freelance proofreading, me doing writing and podcasting. Both of us traveling with our son. Here on Earth, we want to walk the Camino de Santiago in Spain. We want to follow the Mountain Bike Cross Country World Cup one year, May through September, all around Europe and North America. We also want to impact people in a big way for Christ through giving and through our work. We may never see it, though, any of that. I've been writing this fantasy series since 2002. Some people have read it and been impacted by it, and that's been awesome. But what we have to be prepared for is to die in hope, to work diligently and faithfully all our lives and never see the real fruits of our labors. As we'll see next week, tremendous and long-lasting harm can come when we try to rush God's promises to fulfill them in our own way. Trust God's promises that he has made you and wait for his timing and direction. It will not be slow, as some can consider slowness, but it may not be in your lifetime. Be faithful anyway, knowing that God continues to act even when we're gone, and all he calls us to is obedience. That'll do us for this week. Next week, we'll pick back up with Genesis 12, verse 10. Until then, keep the faith and keep it old school. Music